We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. It's the difference between creating a recipe and making something so that people can eat food. It's like you don't actually need a garnish and you don't actually need every texture in every dish that you make. So like, right. what are the core elements? And it, it probably is five ingredients. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Here's a bonus episode from our recent conversation with cookbook authors Eric Kim and Ali Slagle, live at Rizzoli Bookstore in New York. Eric is a New York Times Magazine columnist and author of the best-selling Korean American. Ali is a recipe developer, consultant, and author of the best-selling I Dream of Dinner. I hope you enjoy this incredibly fun and candid talk. And stay tuned for future live tapings. We have many to announce in the summer and fall. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Rizzoli Bookstore. I'm so glad to have you all here tonight um, to celebrate the first installment of Taste Live at Rizzoli, our new event series uh, with the wonderful Taste podcast. Um, and now let's, uh, let's give a very warm welcome to Eric and Ali and Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. We will be... Doing this with frequency is such a beautiful space. I want to thank Shalia and Pat from the Taste Podcast for producing tonight. We're recording this live. Thanks to all the listeners out there. And Ali and Eric, thank you so much for joining me on stage. I have a lot to ask. One more thing. We're going to be here August 17th. Haven't announced it, but we'll do it now. Claire Saffitz and Natasha Pikowitz and Eliza Barbanel celebrating all things pastry. So mark your calendar. How are you guys doing? Great. Yeah. Good. Have, you know, your books came out during the pandemic, and you, we didn't get to do a lot of this, right? This is nice. I think Eric's done this more than I have, but... <laughs> but the difference was I always had a mask on. Yeah, it was always like yeah. kind of like with the mask and a little bit of social distancing. Well, you both contribute to the New York Times. You both have worked at Food 52. You both have released cookbooks. It's such an honor to have you on stage. And I have to ask from the jump, you know... What's happening right now in your home kitchens? Allie, I'll start with you. I think you're always, I think you just did like a total like Instagram bomb today with all the things you've been working on. That was cool. So what have you each, what are you working on right now recipe wise? Sure. So um, right, I every week is different. Every day is a little different. Right now I'm recipe testing for a cookbook, um, which means I get someone else's recipes and I just make sure that they come out well. The deadline is quickly approaching. So I think I've done... I do about 20 recipes a week on top of my own recipes. Um, and today was grocery shopping day. Okay, so let's go there. So let me ask you about grocery shopping. It, do you have help or is it just you? It's me. Okay. What, is it multiple stops? or Because you're out on Long Island now or is it one place? It's multiple stops because nowhere has everything I need. But I have kind of like a mental idea of what is at each store. So okay. I know my routes. You know your route. Okay. And when you're actually, you're testing, is there something like a little, is like the pressure off a little bit when you're just testing or is it still pretty pressure packed? 
It's a totally different thing because I have to like turn off my developer brain. I have to turn off like, well, I would do it this way or like this way would be better and just really follow someone else's path. And I think I learn a lot from that because I'm doing stuff I would never think to do myself. Um, and then I get to provide feedback and, and be helpful in that way. That's great. Eric, what are you doing right now in the kitchen? What's happening? I just, my partner just moved in. So the, I've moved never, in, moved in. Yeah. Moved like in, moved in, moved into in. my apartment. Damn. All right. Um, wait, wait, I got, we can throw this out. We have a lot of questions. Well, and so the point of that is just that I, um, I, I have a much cleaner kitchen and I realize what a mess I've been making <laughs> before because no one was looking at it and no one was, was paying attention. So now I'm I'm working on a fried chicken and it's been the cleanest my kitchen has been, which is strange because frying usually makes a huge mess. Are we thinking with chicken, is it um, like karage or is it on the bone? What are you doing? I was trying to be as vague as possible. Um, okay, so this is like for... That's coming up, but um, it's boneless. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Next question. Uh, we don't need to go there. <laughs> so let me ask you both. Um, you write for the New York Times and the cooking app. And I think everyone here has obviously used the app. Um, let's talk about the comments. Because the comments can get kind of real, right? The comments. So what do you learn? Allie, what did you what do you learn from the comments? Do you read them? I read them when the recipes are just published, just to make sure that there's not an error. Uh, yeah, I read them pretty <laughs> religiously, but, um, you know, it's really because I'm at first it was to see how people are using them. Cause I was just so curious and I want to know what people are doing. And, but now I realize sometimes it's to make sure that a rogue commenter doesn't lead everyone else astray. That's like a new thing. <laughs> oh first yeah it will be like oh <laughs> this isn't right i would rather do this and then i see it and i'm like oh god that's going to become the top comment and then everyone's dinner is going to be ruined so i i do it now out of like just protection of other people's food i think for, for me the comments are are kind of like liberating because one comment will be like i hated this worst thing ever and the next <laughs> yeah. one is like this is the best thing i've ever made in my whole life and it's like if that's the spectrum like I'm just going to do what I want to do. But then the only thing that I listen to is the negative one. Okay. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, that's only for my therapist. But, yeah, I think um, the comments are really helpful. Really? Yeah. <laughs> helpful. Okay, yeah. that's the net positive of that comment. Was there any time that you wanted to jump in? Because I don't think you guys jump in, right? Because <sighs> that's not part of, like, New York Times style. I think we're starting to change it, actually. Oh, um, really? And the reason I started to step in is because, like I said before, so a great example is this ham. There was a pineapple ham I published, <laughs> and my whole point was that fresh pineapple has a much brighter flavor, but in order to use it, you need to make sure you, like, deactivate the the meat-melting cap like, capabilities of that enzyme. Because if you don't, if you just, like, try to bedrool the top of the ham with fresh pineapple, it will... Um, it will truly turn to glue, like pink glue, that ham will. And um, I was trying to warn people because I was like, that's why I'm asking you to encircle the ham in the pan instead. Anyway, this one person, an early commenter was like, I've been making pineapple ham for decades. Great accent. And my ham has never melted. That's 
that's just some gibberish. <laughs> and then I was like kind of worried about it. But then I did finally respond because I, I was like, just to clarify, canned pineapple is obviously okay. I'm just saying fresh pineapple, be careful. And then there was someone who whose ham was ruined. Like an Easter ham was melted oh. because of this lady who oh. thought she was being <laughs> helpful. <laughs> so sometimes you have to step in. This is like a screenplay. Yeah, it's within... a whole other thing. <laughs> um, Allie, let's talk about the way that you write recipes, particularly in um, I Dream of Dinner. Unconventional. Unconventional. Sure. Let's get a little bit, because I haven't talked to you about this. Was that hard to sell the publisher? Actually, no. I I expected a lot of pushback on the format of the recipes for those who aren't familiar. All of the measurements are in the steps themselves, and then yes. you don't really get a, an ingredient list. You get kind of like a grocery list that you can skim. So it's like ketchup. Do I have ketchup? Yes, done. There are no head notes. It's just like one sentence long. And I really, I felt strongly about this format, and I thought I would have to um, really sell my editor on every step, but I think she totally got it, which was a huge vote of confidence because it is like a really new way of thinking about how to use a recipe. Um, but I did it because of my own experience working, my own experience cooking from recipes. Mm -hmm. I had so many questions. I was like, it calls for romaine. Like, can I use something else that's juicy? Can I skip it? What if I don't marinate something for 24 hours? Like, is it going to turn pink? Um, and I just wanted to kind of like let life into the recipes a yeah. little bit so you can understand like what has to happen for this thing to come out and what can like kind of just go with whatever works for you. Yeah, I just I love it. it it's such a strength of this book, the way that you decided to format it. Thank you. And it's a bold choice. Yeah, I mean, like you said, remember, remembering the negative comments, like some people really, really don't like it. Yeah. But I think it, you just have to give it a shot. Like... Yeah. Pick Why? up the book if you don't have it because you'll you'll see right away that it's it's quite intuitive. Yeah. The way um, is that going to be your style going forward with other projects? We can get into that later. I don't know. I do. It wasn't like exactly how I wanted it designed, so I do think there's ways to make it a little bit more straightforward for people. Um, but I like the direction of it. Yes. Okay. Now, Eric, Korean American, I want to ask you, um, there's so much narrative and memoir in, in this book. Um, and we read your writing, we see some of that happen, but we also see just straight reporting third person, absolutely like just going there and reporting on, it. I think, um, it's a real strength of yours to be able to do both tones. When you're figuring out Korean American, how did you balance the real instruction with the story? Very challenging, and I think you really executed it well, personally. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like I was really inspired by Nigella Lawson's Feast. That was a book that had really, really, really long headnotes that were entire pages and um, introductions that were also just two or three pages. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of space in a book. I mean, it, for me, it was... The fact that finally I had all this room to do whatever I wanted. And so it felt really natural to cook in the daytime and then write at night and write as long as I wanted. But then, um, I don't know if you found this true too, Ali, but for me, the, the recipe writing, I found myself able to add so many little sentences that I would never... You would never be able to do in a in a for like a for an edit for um for a publication or for an employer, but I think um, in that and because it's your book and you've set the precedent, you can write the rules in the very beginning, like quite literally. You say this is how you use this particular book. These are the rules of this book. That felt really freeing to me. And I don't know one one little example that I can think of is um, there's a moment when you put spinach into a pot for this curry. 
this Japanese kind of curry, or I call it whatever it's complicated. We we'll, won't go there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Korean Japanese curry, and um, the I, I say that it. It, it it decreases from the size of a football field to like the size of your fist or I said something like that. And those little like jokes, um, Genevieve does actually let me, Yeah, you, you sneak know, a few jokes in the New York Times cooking me, app? If it's like short. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but you know, with this book, I could write longer and um, yeah. I enjoyed that part of the process. Yeah. I love in the Epicurious article that just came out about your four favorite cookbooks, you you cite Amy Thielen. And I love that. What, what, let's talk about Amy a little bit because I think it's a great call. And I think she definitely, when writing about Midwestern cuisine, she really brings a lot of memoir to it in such a cool way. I'd love to see that pick. Yeah. Um, well, that's a great, that that article or those those books that I picked are a good example of what inspired me when I was writing mine. And because those books are real tomes, right? I'm not saying current American, this is definitely not a tome. It's like pretty thin. But um, I think those books were, had so much research and so much memoir. And I was just really moved by that as someone who was outside of food media at the time. I was an academic, and so I enjoyed reading those books. And so I wanted to write a book that people would want to read. Yeah, I loved I loved seeing that pick. Okay, let's talk about actually developing recipes. We spoke in our conversation um, on the show about the the milk bread, and you said you tested it forty times. Yeah, let's talk. I, I'd like to get a little more into that because I think okay. forty times is, and you're next because I know you also do these crazy. Tests. You know, like forty is a I wonder if it was more. Like I, yeah. <laughs> that was like an undersell. That, that one was truly, I was doing it every day. But it really, I think by the time I was at the 50th, 60th, whatever time, it was because my family was eating it every day. So we just like yeah. needed more bread. But also um, it, it was it was therapy for me. And I think um, now I'm really allergic to writing about cooking that feels like therapy because everyone, you know, it's like really yeah. everyone's written that one piece. But um, I, it really was a therapy for me during a time where I didn't have access to therapy. It, I was like home with my parents, you know, all day um, and my family. And so it was, it was, and it was during the pandemic. So I really needed that, I think. So it was more the repetition. I think that's the thing I like about books or cookbooks versus um, I love writing, you know, for the New York Times. But the with a book you're living the recipe for a year and that yep. felt really significant to me yeah because then i could really s- sell it or i could be like i i truly know this recipe it's a like dope back, i've made it it's great the recipe for milk bread in the book you can stand on the stage and say yes it is good thank you yourself do you have like a recipe grail that you're working on um, that's like just been really stressing you <laughs> I no i mean i think some like some developers say like if you do something 40 50 times like it just means you should move yeah. on and come back to it um but on the other side of the spectrum it's like you're chasing this idea of a dish that you have in your head and like you're just trying to find the thing so honestly the recipe that was the hardest for me in this book is this braised cabbage um mm. that like you cook with coconut milk and green curry and i just like was really specific about the texture of the cabbage, like how thick I wanted the curry sauce. And I just like couldn't find it. But I, and then at the same time, I was like, just give up. Like it's just cabbage, like move on. But just cabbage, no, man. I was really the Cabbage is, is really chaff. Is this Napa or is this It was savoy, savoy or green. Savoy or green, so you're going. And so like the texture can get really fucked up. You can get, you do it wrong. it's like it can be too hard. And then right. cabbage releases so much liquid. I actually find cabbage and like cauliflower recipes really hard to, to develop because there's so much water release. Mm-hmm. And so it was like diluting and it's like, what's the evidence? Anyways, it was a lot of cabbage for a while. Interesting. And, and for you, Eric, is there a grail that you're working on right now, a recipe that is just really giving you some trouble or do you just have to move on after, like, take the advice of your editor? 
<laughs> um, uh, okay, so I, I think that I've been working on this. I'll just talk about it. I, I've been working on this fried chicken for, for weeks. Well, yeah. Like truly. Let's go back to that. We were yeah, we had some tech difficulty. We're, now we can um, go back to it and really focus on this fried chicken. I'll be like coy about it to like increase demand. But um, <laughs> I, I'm really excited about it because like I said, my partner moved in, which meant I, I moved out my, sorry, this is really specific. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's TMI though. I moved out my full size bed and moved in, t- moved in his queen size bed. And it required half of the apartment to be taken over by a bed now. And it's just, <laughs> it makes a big difference like this versus the, anyway. So I'm really happy about this recipe because there, my, my, my goal was just to create a recipe that would feel really easy and to take the fear out of frying. And I have some like little things that I'm excited to share in a few weeks. But I think for me, it was being able to go to sleep at night and not smell oil on my pillow. And that took, <laughs> that took weeks and to truly get it like really crispy um, without, with, without drying out the meat. And so yesterday I, I had a video team with me and we just ate this specific type of boneless fried chicken. Okay, not karage, something else. For um, we did it for you know we did we did it for like eight hours and we we, we were hours. well we were you know we were frying chicken. we went to five to seven five to six like different places and and um oh, cool. and this morning I using some tips that I learned from these amazing chefs and and cooks I um I I got my final recipe and it felt really good and it so I'm, at, I'm more at the end of it but um you know for for me like something that takes a long time it's really because i'm given the time to do it like i you know i could turn in a perfectly fine fried chicken but it feels good to really go into the ins and outs of something and so rarely do we have the opportunities to do that i think and so it's like it's such a privilege so eliza and i are always giving our writers prompts we're always saying like especially recipe development like we're approaching summer so we need something cold or frozen or whatever. Uh, I want to know from each of you, what is the most difficult prompt from an editor that that you're given when writing a recipe? Should we talk about Thanksgiving? <gasps> <laughs> you both have been like in this <laughs> Thanksgiving industrial complex of food magazines, working on them and starting basically now. Is it traumatizing for you yet? <laughs> I, I have no emotional attachment to Thanksgiving. My family didn't do it. I also just don't understand the food. Like, I don't understand how the dishes go together and, like, why they all taste the same. It's the same texture, the same color. Like, I'm just like, what is going on? But I appreciate that, like, people are really emotionally attached to this selection of dishes. And so I'm like, you do whatever you want. I have nothing to add to this conversation. And I have actually avoided That's all true. but one Thanksgiving story. Wow, that's so funny. I I love Thanksgiving (laughs) because it's just like, it's like a show to me. It's like a parade. But um, for me, it's actually, I want to know what you think about this, but um, it's whenever Genevieve and I are talking about something and she's like, this would be great as a five ingredient. And I'm like, oh, and I love, I love that prompt. I love it five ingredients but sometimes you really need six sometimes you need seven and so you know usually i'm able to go to her and i'm being like i'm able to be like i'm so sorry but this thing this recipe has six ingredients and she's like oh that was yeah that's fine i was always <laughs> and so she so salt and oil doesn't count right that's like the whole ground rule with wait, six what? ingredients salt and oil doesn't count right no no they don't but um you know it, it, it is is i love that prompt though but it's so hard for me to put out a truly five ingredient recipe that i actually think is delicious but 
Ali's so good at it. <laughs> I know you really are. Actually, how do you feel about that? I think that it is actually how people, it's the difference between creating a recipe and making something so that people can eat food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I think that that's actually what is you, it's like you don't actually need a garnish and you don't yeah. actually need every texture in every dish that you make. So like, what is the core elements? Right. What are the core elements? And it, it probably is five ingredients. Yeah. What? Let's speak of ingredients. Like, what's an ingredient that just gives you nightmares? We talked about the water level in a, spa- in a, a cauliflower. That might be one. I have one. You have yeah. one? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I find fresh tomatoes very hard. Oh. Should I explain? No, I'm, I'm, you should absolutely <laughs> explain. I mean, you're talking about, um, first, they're often bad. Right. So you never know what you're getting. Yeah. And you're developing for a recipe for someone You have no idea what tomato is in their hand. A tomato is both sweet and acidic at the same time. So like how you're balancing that is really hard. But the person's tomato itself could be like not sweet at all. It could be really bitter. And then it has a lot of water. So it's like, but what does that water taste like? I don't know what your tomato tastes like. So I don't do that many fresh tomato recipes. And if I do, it calls specifically for cherry tomatoes because they have less water content. And so they're generally more flavorful. And you're getting a lot of the tomato-ness that you are will get with like Aroma or whatever hot house is available. Right. And you can't say like go to the farmer's market and get the no. perfect tomato because like the you don't know. You're also not a douche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't write your recipes like that. That's a great answer though. Um, I, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me, so, so the way I do it is if I do find an ingredient difficult or I don't like it, I will develop many recipes around it so that I can get better at it. Or like, I don't know, that's something that I, I feel strongly about. And for me, eggplant was that. And that's why eggplant, I, I feel like at every publication I've been at so far, eggplant was like the first recipe I developed. And I don't know why. And now I love eggplant. You like it. I was going to take, yeah. who likes eggplant? Just raise your hand. We've got about 89 <laughs> percent yeah. here. So I, I appreciate your honesty. But it's, um, it's difficult texturally. You have to really understand the, the fruit. And I think I was able to, it felt good to finally arrive at a good place. But um, oh, I had another answer, a better one, but I forgot what it was. Okay, we can come back to it. Um, I'd like to talk about a little work outside of cookbooks and food editorial. Uh, you're busy bees and, and Ali, I know you are working with uh, a cool brand that we've talked about on the show and, and write, written about called Heyday Canning. And I, I feel like dipping into commerce is probably a pretty cool thing for you. Do you feel like um, working with a brand is something that you want to do more of? I, I, I just like always want to know food editorial people, like when is it too much to work with a brand or not? I think it's kind of like you... Like for me, it's like, I'm not a recipe developer. I'm not like, I'm not a writer. What I want to do is like help people feed themselves. And like, I think that Heyday Canning is really helping people with that. Um, And so it's exciting to like bring what I do to them, which is really, I'm just tasting their beans and telling them if I like them or not. (laughs) It's really all I'm doing. Tell us about Heyday though, because I think it is a cool, cool product. So it's um, just started... Within the last year, it's um, these two women who met at a natural foods company. One is like an incredible canning manufacturing expert and one is a marketing expert. But basically they are trying to revolutionize the canned food aisle from beans on. So in the can of beans, you have extremely well-cooked beans. Like really just the texture of the bean is amazing. But then it's in a sauce. So it's like a sauce simmered bean. So if you were going to buy a can of beans and then make something with it, like the make something with it is already in the can. So you just have to heat it up. Yeah. I like the harissa a lot. I mean, the the citrus 
like this, the level of citrus is is really nice. Yeah, I mean, there's so much I'd never knew about yeah. in terms of canning that I've learned. Like that harissa um, chickpea used to have rose water in it, but some people have like a really intense reaction to rose water where they like cannot taste anything else besides the rose water. And I tasted it. I was like, I didn't taste anything. No in there. way. It's like cilantro. It's got yeah. that like a effect. Now, Eric, let me ask you. You're writing for cooking and writing for the app, but you also have this column. The New York Times Magazine. Every month, you're writing something. I loved your piece about about Scotch and the Rob Roy, the journey to Rob Roy. Let's talk about writing a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine. What's what's that like? Is there like a lot of pressure? Um, yeah, that, there is a lot of pressure in that it's the deadline. It's yeah. um, I don't know. With the newspaper, it all moves so fast and so last minute. This is a daily paper and we're just trying to turn out a Wednesday section. And so things get moved around a lot. So, you know, I won't say that those deadlines are soft, but <laughs> <laughs> like if I if I don't nail my a recipe by a certain date, it's kind of okay. Um, we'll figure it out. But um, with the magazine, so many people are counting on every piece of it. But I think because it's so regimented and because like not filing is not an option, I think uh, I'm able to get the things out. And it's pretty regimented. It's... Week one is get the recipe done. Week two is do all your reporting. Week three is, you know, do some research, go out and eat and like figure things out. And honestly, the very last thing is I write it. That's so. a very interesting <laughs> method. And we've talked off mic. It's like you some as we'll get down to the de- the very end. Yeah, of the, deadline. the pressure of the deadline sort of helps me turn stuff out. But I think, um, I think, I think what I love about the magazine is with print journalism in general, the, it's so far ahead, far yeah. in advance. So, um, We've already mapped out through December, and I've started. I've been doing this column for over two years now, I think, and so I'm able to. I guess I'm in my second year now, but um, at the start of the year, I was able to say, okay, I know what these twelve are going to be, and so I've started thinking of them as like little, like Mm. little collections, and so that helps me to stay focused. And what really I'm bringing to the table every month for this column is. what what is like something that really changed my mind about cooking? Yeah, that's what I, I was going to ask. What that general theme is, and you answered that. It's just it's terrific. Like Thank you're you. doing Thanks. such great work in the magazine. I, I love it. Thanks. And I mean, how are you inspired? Like, is it is it just literally like walking around and, and observing the world, or do you have like a real? Uh, you said you mapped out twelve. So yeah, I think it's um it's it's sort of every time I come back from a trip. You know, it's it's travel and luck. You know, what's really great is the reason this year's column has so many moments that are like, this is the best insert food item that I've ever had. Um, biscuit, uh, turnips or, you know, chicken I've ever had. Um, I think the reason that happened is because I had to travel so much last year for this cookbook. And also I'm realizing that this is a year anniversary that I've had a Rizzoli talk. So that's kind of cool to be here yeah. with Ellie. But um, I think because of that, I... Um, I, I come back to Genevieve and I'm like, she's like, okay, give me what you got. And it's like, okay, I had this amazing thing here. And I had this, this, this. And then it's, so it's really easy to, it's, it's almost like finding room, enough room for these things that I've tasted um, is, is really the challenge. Okay. So I'm going to open up to the floor in a sec. I have a couple quick questions. Uh, we're in a bookstore, wonderful bookstore. I love this place. And the cookbook selection is is nice because there's a lot of books from overseas there so definitely check out the cookbook section what are a few uh, books that you're reading right now each of you uh new releases i saw Ramutan out there yeah great book which um i fell really hard for the great thing about it is if you go grocery shopping for like 
10 things, you can make everything in the book, which is awesome. Um, I also really love yogurt and whey um, oh, yeah. from the owner of White Mustache. Um, I just think the story is like she, her voice is both fierce and extremely kind and gentle in a way that I think is is really lovely. Yeah, and Rambutan is the food of Sri Lanka, and it, through the you know lens of London, um, fantastic book. Eric, do you have a couple? Oh yeah, I'm so I've been really obsessed with this podcast, Everything Cookbooks, and I'm not even writing a cookbook right now, but I I listen to it and I'm so invested. Um, it's so good. And Andrea Nguyen is one of the hosts, and she has a new book out called Evergreen Vietnamese. It's so good. I think I'm even more invested because I've heard her talk about it on the podcast leading up to the release. And um, I don't know, there's a vegan fish sauce in there that's very original. It's it's her. She's so seasoned and wise as a cook, but also as a writer and as a recipe writer. And I'll, I'll be honest, like the it's this New York Times job that made me really understand or it helped me to respect recipe writing even more. And I, th I think that book showcases what years of experience writing recipes and caring about the reader will result in. And it's it's brilliant. Um, and, and Andrea's voice is just so lovely and it's full of authority and but kindness. Absolutely agree. I have one more question that I'll wrap up with, but let's take some, do you want to hand your mic over to Christine? And we'll go to the audience. Please raise your hand. We'd love to hear from you. The first question is always the hardest. Who wants to do it? Some, oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Ali. Um, I was very intrigued um, by the idea that you didn't have head notes on your recipe when so much of the conversation around recipes now is giving context and acknowledging the source of your inspiration and how these ingredients were used in different ways. And I just am wondering, like, how did you come to this decision and how do you um, justify it and explain it within sure. this conversation? Yeah, it was definitely a hard decision because... Um, every recipe has a web and is like a tree of other inspirations. And so I definitely was worried about making sure it felt like that web was being represented. So in the back of the book, I do talk about all of the people whose recipes have inspired this. But what I was so hyper-focused on in this book is like that moment of like, I have to make dinner for myself or my family right now. Like what is absolutely necessary in this moment and what isn't. And I think in that moment, like, so many people just don't read the head notes or feel like maybe they're going to miss something important. And, and in my book, I just wanted to be like, you don't have to read that right now. Like, it's okay. Like, just make dinner. Eric, I have a question for you. Um, it's really cool meeting you or seeing you. Um, so I'm Korean American and I feel very thankful that you're representing a lot of us out here. My question is, did you like struggle with the idea of writing a Korean American cookbook? I think like there's a thought of like, do you have the authority to write a book about your own culture? Do you not? Like, I feel like there's a lot in there and this is probably a very loaded question. But yeah, like, did you struggle with that decision at all? Um, go back and forth with it. Thank you for the question and thank you for saying all that. It's great to see you. And we can meet after um, when we're signing books if you want. But um, I, uh, I I was like, I do a lot of like thinking when I'm in Ubers. And <laughs> on my way here, I was like, okay, it's been like an, a year since the book came out. And I think about like, did I do anything in this year? But for me, it was how hard that was to talk about. I didn't realize, um, I didn't, I didn't realize going into it that it would be so difficult. And what's difficult is uh, just 
every moment I'm I'm doing a press thing or every time I'm uh, reading a, a comment or I'm like engaging with someone, it's um I realize how political it is to have a a non-white book in a in whatever setting, and that was something that I don't know that I was right like I wasn't necessarily excited or eager to be someone who has to talk about that every time. But then it became something that I was like, wait, I, I do want to talk about this because now I have an opinion because this keeps happening to me. Or um, So there's, I don't know, It's it was written around a time when I was feeling very strongly that um, I needed to get my point of view across, which was that um, there are the, these distinctions about what's authentic and what's not and who gets to be arbiters of of um, authenticity and who doesn't and um, like do you have to be from the culture to cook it or not and, and automatically writing a book that for me was supposed to just be um, a, a, like a Genesis book about my culinary life as a kid growing up in Atlanta it ended up becoming this thing that where people picked it up and they were like um, this isn't even Korean like it's not even a Korean cookbook and then other people would be like well it's not it's not even an American cookbook and I'm just like that's the point. It's called Korean American, and it, so it was really it, that part was not something that I, I was I thought I was ready to do. But after a year of doing it, I think I and and I also like I I tried to process a lot of it through writing in um in a very public place called the New York Times. So I think that's something that I wasn't re- I didn't know that I would be doing, but um I'm I'm glad I, I'm glad I did because I, I hope that you know the more of us who speak about. Um, how those lines are a little more blurred than they they than they seem um, on first glance. I, I, I hope that that will help people. And whether it's a publisher um, picking up a, a book or a proposal, or um, people who are out there in the world eating eating food in restaurants, or my hope is just that people will stop um, stop having such uh, difficult relationships to labels like that i don't know it's that's tough to talk about but it's it's something that after a year i was like wow that was a lot and i think i blacked it all out hi there thanks so much for this this is awesome um so i was just thinking about uh professions in which you know you spend you're able to spend most of your time designing food and making food for people and being very creative about it and i was just thinking what do your conversations look like with chefs or like restaurant owners? Um, where do you guys connect and where do you guys maybe have, you know, when you guys run into challenges in your conversations and uh, how do you guys relate to food similarly or differently? I love that question. Do you want to go? Um, in terms of restaurant chefs, that's a great question because I've never worked in a restaurant and I never went to culinary school. So I definitely feel like they're doing something that is like, beyond comprehension for me. Um, But I taste food and I am excited about it. And I think that there are like probably, there are many things that chefs can teach home cooks. Um, A great example is I adopted a a scallion ginger salmon from a restaurant called Milu, which is here. And the chef um, was like used to work in really high-end restaurants. So I got their like spreadsheets. I got like seven spreadsheets with like formulas and all of this stuff. And I was like, can you just tell me how you make this thing? Like, this is so complicated for me. Anyways, it really took a lot of work to translate her process into something a home cook could do. And then when I sent her, I wanted to send her the recipe because I was like, this is so different. I was so nervous about sending it to her. And she was like, I don't know how you translated it. So I think there was something really wonderful about like, we both not really understanding our process, but understanding the end goal is the same. I love that. I mean, I just spent 
um, 30 minutes on Monday morning. It was the first thing I did this week in a chef's kitchen, just trying to um, watch him make pesto. And it's, it's a recipe I'm working on for, for later, but it only took 30 minutes for me to watch him do it in person with his hands. And he even put like a little chef coat on me. And um, I, I don't know, I, I think in that moment, and it's a restaurant I've been eating at for like 10 years, and I'm also not restaurant trained or anything. I made salads when I was like 16. But um, I think for me, it was uh, really watching him cook, even though it was an industrial kitchen, I was like, I, I really relate to this. Like we're, we're, we, our language is the same in that it's food. But um, the expertise that I happen to have very randomly and by chance is that I know how to translate his cooking into a recipe. And so I love that role. I mean, that's something I did for Korean American. Like my mom was the source, but it's it's a really lovely, I don't know, it's a, it's a nice moment to get to stand in a, a chef's kitchen with that person and to watch them cook and be good at what they do. But also, you know, you're a student, you're learning and... Um, I don't know. I, th I think that process of translating is really special. Do you do it? Well, do you do it from memory, or do you take notes, or do you do video, or do you do like what's the uh, well, way okay. of, of documenting? Because we all have different methods yeah. of working with chefs. There are no rules, I think, because I, I do it differently depending on the situation. But this time, this man was so busy. He he had just gotten a shipment, so I, I wanted to get out of his hair. So I just video recorded it, and it took thirty minutes to make the thing which is a nice selling point for when I write about it later. Um, but by the time I was out, I stopped by a coffee shop and I watched the video and it was perfect because I had the timing. I had the, I had all the details I needed. And th that made me realize like the whole book tour for that, I was like, write down your family recipes before it's too late. But then I realized actually just video record your parents cooking it <laughs> and then archive that. Don't, you don't have to write it down unless you want to, but that's a very specific skill that I don't know. Um, kind of to that question, when you're developing recipes, I feel like the cookbooks I gravitate for are like brains I recognize who can explain information to me. So how much like in that exchange, you're, you're dealing with that too. How much are you trying to like preserve what makes sense to you and avoid mediating your own thought process? But how also much are you conscious of us who are trying to understand you and your way of organizing information? My recipe writing has changed a lot since working on this job because um, I have people around me who are constantly thinking about the reader and the consumer especially. And um, I think really the thing that I have in mind is always how to say something quickly because people's attention spans are so short, as is mine. So um, there are little soliloquies that I want to share in the recipe, but there's no, like, no one will get anything out of it because it's too long. So it's it's about distilling, I think. For me, I'm always like, okay, I have to say this really quickly. You have two seconds to say that you're a thing. Uh, what do you want to say in that moment? So that's usually what I'm thinking about, maybe. For me, it's less about, like, my my opinion and more about what I think people will expect from the recipe. So I'm not trying to say, like, I think a burger should be like this. I think, like, this is what I think people want from this recipe. That makes sense. Okay, hi. So this is a bit more of a abstract and maybe playful question, but um, and maybe Ali can speak to this a bit more. I'm wondering how often, if ever, for both of you, um, you actually dream your recipes, and maybe you can give an example of one that's come from a dream and how it's been developed. There definitely has been um, not okay. There has been dreams. There have been dreams. I don't remember them, um, but I do have a great example which was I the New York Times wanted me to do a Christmas cookie a holiday cookie and I had never developed a baking recipe before and I 
was terrified because I know wonderful bakers and I was like, I'm out. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do a savory shortbread. It's going to be super simple. I got it. And I spent all week doing it over and over and and I just like couldn't crack it. And I was, I was going crazy. And then um, we were in Oregon at the time and we went camping in Hood River. And I like had this memory of this crumb cake that had the perfect texture that's like exactly what I wanted and I was like what did what was that like where was that in my brain that it didn't come out like four days ago but I definitely think like breaking up your like mental race car and just like breaking that cycle is really helpful for development oh I love that I mean I don't know if I have an answer but it reminds me of um just the when I developed a holiday cookie, the very, the very first one that Times asked me to do, that almost broke me too. That was <laughs> I'm in awe of bakers. Yeah, me too. Hi guys. Um, you've been talking a ton about like your inspiration behind the books day and other recipes, um, as in like the books in the store or even just going to a restaurant. But I'm this is also sort of a playful insight question. Um, are there any um non-food things that inspire you? People, um, books, or even like albums <laughs> that you play right before you make a recipe? I will say definitely yes. And I think like um expanding your inspiration all the time is really important. So my boyfriend and I um, moved out of New York so that we could travel for half the year. So we have a van and we go west and we just like, I think seeing new things constantly. And it's not like Mount Rushmore. It's just like seeing a cool tree or whatever, like really does help like have inspiration. So one recipe I have is this cocoa granola. And I actually thought about it because I was looking at the rocks of the cliffs in California and how they were like kind of wet and brown and how that reminded me of a granola. And so it's a it's a great recipe. Oh, that's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. My answer is less pretty, but I, I, I listen to murder, po- like true crime podcasts when I cook because um, I don't know, like that's that's and when I drive. So when I cook and when I drive, that's when I listen to those. And it's like just the right attention that you need to be like really like enthralled. And then, but also you're working with your hands. So that that helps me with um, things that are a little more monotonous in the kitchen. So in a way it helps inspiration, I guess. Yeah. Hello. Um, So I'm sure that throughout the process of recipe development, it yields a lot of food, right? So outside of that, how are you, how do you, like, what do you feed yourselves? Like, I'm sure it's a tiring, very repetitive process, you know? <laughs> so my latest thing is um, I've been telling everyone I, I meet um, that this is the, about this, but it's it's just a slice of toasted milk bread with peanut butter, sprinkle of salt, drizzle of honey, and nutritional yeast. And it's crazy. And I can't tell if it's like, just sounds like high food or if it's truly divine, like truly like, mm, but it really hits the spot for some reason. I'm someone who hates peanut butter. I don't even like it, but I, I have a jar because I live with someone else now. And so it, um, it's changing my life. Um, I did just decide that I have to come up with like a lunch that I can make every day. Otherwise I'm just eating like random food. And the decision was chickpeas, balsamic vinegar, and olive oil. Like I can do that. And it's actually what my mom ate when she was in college, and it's very good. Yeah. Salt, pepper? Yeah. Cool. And then, like, whatever vegetables or, like, cheese or whatever you want to throw in. I think you guys have, I think you guys have amazing jobs. So I'm interested in your journey to where you are right now. I was wondering, what did you study undergrad? 
I was a geography major and a Chinese minor, which means I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't know that. Um, I did English literature and creative writing, poetry, so. Hi. So I was just wondering, what's been the most surprising thing that's come out of uh, your engagement or interaction with your audiences online, and how has that influenced your work? I can't tell if it's... Um, that I'm projecting or because I'm literally posting on my social media, but I, I can't tell if it's that or if it's, I, th I feel like there is this perfect um, kind of meeting point or Venn diagram of people who love Timothy Chalamet and cooking and like Korean food or something. And so I feel like I've found that. And that's why I'm wearing the shirt because um, I was like, okay, I'm going to get to meet some really cool people. And But I, there there's a common thing there. I don't know what it is, but... That was the most surprising thing for me. I just realizing that um, a lot of my readers are, you know, m like me. That's kind of cool. It's interesting. I don't know. I have a lot of like people in college who really love my recipes and cook my recipes. And when I see college kids, I'm like, you are, are you seven? Like you are so young. <laughs> I mean, I feel so old, but I just love that they have taken to my recipes. Well, I want to close by asking, I think we're, I always ask you, like, books are there future books in your in your in your future um either ones that you write or ones that you collaborate on Ali I'll start with you I don't have a book in the works I am happy not having a big thing happening right now that's great take the time yeah take the time have a summer you know have a summer <laughs> good call how about you Eric what are you what are you working on um I'm working very painfully on a collection of essays yeah, yeah, that's gonna be great. I can't summer. Wait. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> so great. Well, my peanut butter toast. Thank you all for joining, and we'll see you in August. And check out the Taste Podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.